happen. It's week number four today, week four of five weeks, where we are studying through the Gospel of John chapters 6 to 14. And in those chapters, we are learning together the I am statements of Jesus. We're thinking about the identity of Jesus. Who is this one called the Christ? And what does he say of himself? The fundamental, foundational principle that we've been learning for the last month, and it's the overarching truth that we never want to forget, is this simple truth that Jesus is enough. You remember that, right? We've said it every single week. Jesus is enough. And I never want you to forget that. In fact, would you do it again today? Would you say it out loud with me? Both campuses, like you mean it. Jesus is enough. That's beautiful. He is. In John chapter 6, we learned that he is enough to satisfy us and to sustain us through this life and into eternity. We learned this when having fed the multitudes with one little boy's lunch, Jesus then declared himself to be the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And that was this wonderful moment, this miraculous multiplication in John chapter number six, where Jesus is, um, is his fame is spreading and people are gathering and thousands have assembled to him and he performs this miracle in feeding them. Well, when you come to John chapter number seven, you've moved ahead in the timeline of Jesus' life a significant amount. And by the time you get to John chapter number seven, you're probably within the last six to eight months of Jesus' lifetime. You might remember, in fact, when you turn back a couple of pages to John chapter 7, and let me remind you of verse number 2, where the Bible says that uh, the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. The Jewish feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus had come up to this feast of tabernacles being celebrated in Jerusalem. And we've learned that he took advantage of this opportunity to declare himself to be the Messiah. Multiple times, he says, I am the Christ, the anointed one. I'm the one that you've been looking for. And he said it in different ways. Now, you should understand that not everybody was excited to hear Jesus say that I'm the Messiah. Uh, There were some, certainly, who became his followers. They were excited about it, but there were a lot who weren't. There were plenty who rejected that message, and most notably, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, They rejected that message. So much so, they weren't just passive about it, like, you know, we don't believe that. They were angry, hostile toward Jesus because he made this claim. In fact, look at chapter 7. You've got your Bibles to that chapter. Look at verse number 44. Chapter 7 and verse number 44, where the Bible says some of them would have taken him. It would would have seized him, taken him into custody. And and why did they want to take him? into custody because he had the audacity in chapter 7, verse 37. Do you see it? To say, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. I'll give him living water. If you'll come and believe on me, you'll, you'll drink living water that will well up in you like a spring of water that'll never run out. That's his way of claiming to be the fulfillment of God's providing water to a thirsty world uh, in their Messiah. So he claimed to be the Messiah and they determined that they would arrest him. For making such a claim. We'll turn one page to chapter number 8 and look at verse number 59. Chapter 8 verse 59 says, Then they took up stones to cast at him. 
So in chapter 7, they want to arrest him. In chapter 8, they want to stone him to death. And why did they want to stone him to death? Look at what the Bible says in chapter number 8, where it says in verse number 12 that he had the audacity to claim to be the light of the world. In chapter, 12, chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. If you believe in me, follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. Yeah, they took up stones. We're not going to have you saying such things as that. They were going to stone him to death. Go to chapter 10. In chapter 10 and verse number 31, they want to stone him to death again. Do you see it? Chapter 10, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, by the way, have you ever been in a relationship where it just seems that the tension is getting thicker and thicker and thicker? Has that ever happened in your life where you say you could cut the, the tension with a knife? In this place. Well, that's what's happening here in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 10. The, the tension, the hostility, the anger of these Pharisees is getting worse and worse. And so they want to arrest Jesus and they want to stone Jesus. And the Bible tells us in chapter 10, verse number 39, that again, they want to take him into custody. They want to arrest him. And so my point in sharing all of that, walking you through that, is just to show you how that this hostility and this tension is building and getting worse and worse. Until finally, Jesus slips out of Jerusalem. Uh, look at chapter 10, verse 40. In chapter 10, verse 40, it says that he leaves Jerusalem. He went away beyond the Jordan River into the place where John, John the Baptist, at first had baptized, and he stayed there. So he leaves Jerusalem. He travels about 13, maybe 15 miles to the Jordan River. He goes to a place likely, which is called Bethabara. It's near the northern tip of the Dead Sea. He's far removed now from, uh, from Jerusalem, and he stays there. And the Bible says in verse number 41 that people started coming to him there at the Jordan River. It says, many people resorted unto him. And this is what they said. John did no miracle, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many people believed on him while he was there. Now Jesus is likely in this location at the Jordan River for several months. We know that he has to go back to Jerusalem because Passover is coming. And from the Feast of Tabernacles, chapter 7, until the Feast of Passover, which we'll see in chapter 11 and 12, there's about seven or eight months time frame. So we know that when he goes to this place on the Jordan River, he's not there long. He's got to go back to Jerusalem by Passover because he's going to be crucified at Passover. And so the Bible tells us that, in fact, he does that very thing. Look at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 11, beginning in verse number 55. It says, And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many of them went up out of the country unto Jerusalem before the Passover, to purify themselves, verse 56. And they looked for Jesus there. All these people coming from all over the land came to Jerusalem and they're looking for Jesus. And they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple and they said, what do you think? Is he going to come to the feet? Can you imagine this conversation? I mean, he's so well known now. The hostility has gotten so thick. They're, they're so out to get him that now it's the talk of the town. They're standing around the temple uh, what do you think? You know, Passover's in a day or two. You think he's going to come? They're having this conversation. Will Jesus actually show his face 
in Jerusalem. Look at verse number 57. Both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where Jesus was, they'd better tell it so that the Pharisees could go and take him. They still want to arrest him. So does he come? Does he show up in Jerusalem? Look at the next verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Bethany's two miles from Jerusalem, just over the hill. He does, at Passover, come back to Jerusalem. And that's ultimately going to lead to his, his crucifixion, his arrest and his crucifixion and death. In fact, look at what chapter 12, verse number 1 says. Let's read the whole verse. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made a supper for Jesus. And Martha served. No surprise there. She's the servant. Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them, which sat at the table with him. Now, can I just ask you, when you read these verses, do you go, wait, what? Did you, did you do that when you, read, when you heard me read those two verses? Can I do it again? L- l- just listen, okay? Verse number one, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. The Lazarus which had been dead, and now he's not dead because verse number two says that they made a supper, and Lazarus, the former corpse, is at supper with Jesus. What we know, many of you are aware of the fact that John chapter number 11 records for us the death and the resurrection of Lazarus of Bethany. And this is what we're going to talk about today. But before we read the text, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, I need to ask you a question. Do you believe in life after death? Do you believe that once we die, we live again? This is the question that Jesus asked very directly to Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And it's the question he's asking all of us today. Okay? Let's read it. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now there was a certain man who was sick named Lazarus of Bethany. This was the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. By the way, can I just stop and just say personal testimony? I love verse 5. It's this beautiful uh, commentary in the middle of a narrative where you've got this, this narrative just beginning to unfold, and it's almost as if John steps out of the narrative and goes, by the way, he loved these people so much. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 6, when he had heard, therefore, that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed where he was. He abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then, after that, he said to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples said unto him, Master, the Jews of late have sought to stone you. You're going to go there? You're actually going back to Jerusalem? They want to stone you to death. 
Verse 9 and 10, Jesus answered and said, Well, there are 12 hours in a day, and if any man walks in the day, he won't stumble because he's got the light. But if he walks in the night, he will stumble because there's no light. Anyway, he's simply saying, Now is the time. It's the daytime. It's time for this work to be done. Verse 11, These things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he's doing well. He needs his rest. Hey, look up here. You ever been in a conversation and it's like, it's just not getting it. It's just going over your head. It's exactly what's happening here. Lazarus is sleeping. Oh, good, good. You know, Doc says rest and fluids. That's what he needs. How be it? Verse number 13, Jesus said, Uh, spoke of his death. They thought he was speaking of taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad, therefore, for your sakes, uh, or I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then said Thomas, by the way, what is the designation that we call Thomas? Now, the verse calls him Didymus, which means he was a twin. But what do we call him? He's what, Thomas? Say it. He's doubting Thomas. So listen to what doubting Thomas has to say in verse number 16. Jesus says, come on, we're going up to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) This is an Eeyore moment in your New Testament. If there ever was an Eeyore moment, you know Eeyore, right? From Winnie and the Pooh or Winnie the Pooh. Like, you know, good day if it is a good day at all. Like Johnny Raincloud. So Thomas says, well, if he's going, Lazarus is dead. They're going to kill Jesus. Let's go die with him. I mean, that's depressing. I've met some Baptists like that in my time. None here, none here, but a few. He says, if you're going to let us go and die with him. Verse 17, then when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead and buried for four days. Now, Bethany was near unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. It's a couple of miles. And many of the Jews came to Martha and to Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died. I just ask you, have you ever felt that kind of disappointment? Like the prayer that you prayed didn't get answered in the way that you wanted it to be answered? And if only God had, and why wouldn't God have done, and I wish it had gone another way? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, whatever you will ask of God, he will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said unto him, Well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said unto her, Here it is, not I am the bread of life, not I am the light of the world, not I am the good shepherd. Here it is, verse number 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's his question to her and to us. Do you believe this? And she said unto him, yes, Lord, I believe 
that you are the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So this is just a family, right? I mean, this is, this is just two sisters and their brother. They're not unlike my family or your family. They're like every family that, that you know, every family that I know. This is a family who experienced what all of us have experienced and will experience. That someone that we love, someone in our family, gets sick. And that sickness is concerning, even deadly. And it drives us to do exactly what it drove uh, Mary and Martha to do, and that is to call out to the Lord in prayer. And sometimes those sicknesses and diseases end in death, and the, and the family members who are left grieve through that. This is real world, real life, where we put our feet on the floor every morning kind of stuff. And there are some things we need to know about it. I want you to write it down. The first thing that this passage would teach us is simply to say, and I want you to know this. And I want to, by the way, I, I want to speak to you today. I mean, I speak to you every week as your pastor, but I just want to lean into that role maybe a little more than I'm maybe typically aware of and just get my arms around you and, and just shepherd you for a minute through this. Write this down. This passage teaches us that we can face sickness and death in hope. We can face sickness and death in hope. Now we all know that sickness and death are the result of the fall, right? It's because we live in a cursed world and, and we live under the fall and we are all fallen people. And so that means that all of us in some way or another and at some time or another are going to endure some form of sickness. If we live long enough, our bodies become weak. And ultimately, if, if, uh, if we get sick enough, we live long enough, we are going to die. Everyone is going to die. Absent the Lord's return to take us in the rapture, which of course could happen at any moment, but absent that reality, we will all ultimately die of something. And many of us will approach the, the door of death by way of some some disease, some sickness, or some protracted um, ailment or old age that will take us there. But here's what I want you to know. While that's a reality, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we as followers of Jesus, ought to affirm that we can face that reality. While death is a reality for Christians and non-Christians alike, we as believers can face that reality with hope, with a hopefulness that the world knows nothing of, and we ought to approach it that way, demonstrating our confidence in the crucified and the risen Christ. Listen to what Paul said about this hope that we have when he wrote to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4, you know it well perhaps. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant or unlearned, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those who have died, so that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He doesn't say not to sorrow. He doesn't say if you're a Christian, you don't mind it when a loved one dies. They've gone to heaven. Oh, praise the Lord. That doesn't break my heart. No, no, we never, he never says that. But he says, as you grieve the loss of your loved one who knew Christ, you grieve not like the world grieves, but you grieve in hope because in Christ we have great hope. And because we know that we have this hope in Christ, then we ought to pray in sickness and in death, we ought to pray hope 
hope-filled prayers. Not despondent prayers, not hopeless prayers, but hope-filled prayers. And there are a couple of things that I observe in Jesus' response to this situation that I think fills our prayers or ought to fill our prayers with hope. First of all, write this down. This passage makes clear that when we face sickness or a loved one faces sickness, Jesus knows all about that. I want, you to, I want you to remind yourself of this, that whenever someone that we love is sick or, or dying, we are not in our prayers giving Jesus information. He's not taking notes up in heaven. Like, now, when did they get sick and tell me what was their temperature last night and how long was since they've had food or water? He's not gathering information. He's fully aware of what's happening. It's clear in this passage, they pray, verse 3, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. They send word to Jesus. And in verse 4, Jesus' immediate response to his disciples is, this isn't unto death. This is for the glory of God. He's telling his disciples what even Mary and Martha don't know. He's explaining to his disciples what's happening. In verse 11, he says he's asleep. In verse 14, he makes it clear. He's died. Jesus hasn't gone up yet. He, He hasn't received word that Lazarus has died. But he knows because he's Jesus. And he knows all things. Will you hear your pastor this morning? Whatever it is that you're carrying, that burden of a sickness in your own body, that burden of a disease in your loved one's body, that one that you're praying for, that you love so much who is so sick, maybe an elderly parent that you're caring for and it's so difficult, hear your pastor. Jesus knows all about it. He sees it. He understands where you are. The second thing is that Jesus cares It wouldn't help me much to know that he knew if he didn't care. In fact, it would simply discourage me if I knew that he knew and yet he didn't care. But he cares. He cares deeply. This passage talks about how that Mary and Martha are weeping. How that even they have friends and neighbors that have come and they are weeping. Verse number three says that he's sick and they say that he whom thou lovest is sick. Verse five, John's commentary Oh, how he loved him, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. And so if I know that this Savior, this Messiah, this Lord, this Master, who knows all things and he knows all about my circumstance and he loves me and my loved one deeply, then that gives me confidence to pray with great confidence in his power And his purpose. And when you pray for a loved one who's sick, I want you to pray both ways. Pray with confidence in his power. Jesus can heal. If you believe it, shout amen. Amen. He can do it. Pray with confidence in his power to, to intervene in that situation. But also pray with great confidence in his purpose. That he knows best. And he's working his plan. And his plan is always, as he said to his disciples, to his glory, for the glory of the Son of God. This is what he says in verse number four. This sickness is for the glory of God. Notice verse number six. He gets word that Lazarus is sick, and he waits two days before he leaves where he's at. He's about a day's journey from uh, Jerusalem, and Uh, When he arrives on the fourth day, he finds out that Lazarus has already been buried for four days. Lazarus would have been buried the same day that he died. And so on the day that Jesus receives word, likely, of his sickness, Lazarus died that day. 
Jesus waits two days, then makes a journey, then arrives on the fourth day and, and discover, doesn't discover, he knew already, but is told that Lazarus has in fact been buried for four days. And this is when Martha comes out to Jesus and she says to him, Lord, verse 15, or, or verse 21, if you had been here, why didn't you come sooner? Why didn't you intervene? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Do you think that Mary remembered all the stories, the things that she had seen, and the accounts that she had heard of the power, the healing power of Jesus? You think she remembered that Jesus had healed the lepers? And, and that Jesus had, had cleansed the, uh, the, uh, those with withered hands? And that Jesus had opened blind eyes? She knew all this. And yet she didn't, he didn't do this for her brother. It's interesting, isn't it, that she goes on to say in verse number 22, but I know, whatever you ask God, he'll do it. It's almost a little bit like she's leaning into, would you raise him? I mean, I know you could do that. She doesn't ask it outright, but it seems as if she's leaning into that. She knew about Jairus' daughter, that Jesus had raised her from the dead. She knew that Jesus had walked through the village of Nain one day and raised a young man from the dead. She knew that Jesus could raise her brother from the dead. But Jesus didn't intervene. He didn't heal Lazarus. And Lazarus died. Here's one of the most difficult things for Christians to wrap our heads around, and yet we need to do it in faith-filled prayers and hope. It is that Jesus has the power to heal anyone, but he doesn't always choose to do it. He has the power to alleviate any pain, any sickness, any disease, any death. But sometimes he chooses not to for his glory. You think about it. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, apparently by the time Jesus comes on the scene in his ministry, Joseph is dead. We never read a word about Joseph after, after the age of 12, after Jesus is 12. Apparently he's died. Jesus could have intervened, but he didn't. Lazarus died again at some point, eventually. He died again. Jesus didn't intervene then. What about John the Baptist? The cousin of Jesus, his dear friend, his, his prophet who went before him. The Bible says that when Joseph was martyred, that Jesus wept. He grieved over his death. He could have stopped that, but he didn't. All of his disciples, ultimately, they all died. Jesus didn't intervene in that. Here's the point. Jesus can heal anybody, but sometimes he chooses not to. But if that's the case, if the outcome of my loved one or of my own life, if the outcome is that this, this sickness or this accident or this disease ultimately takes our lives, both the dying saint and those Christian loved ones left behind, can approach that moment with absolute hope. And here's why, I write it down, because the resurrection is real. I don't have to only put my hope in a healing because I understand that for the believer, death is ultimate healing. Because the Bible says in the presence of God, there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more crying, no more death, no more graves, no more tears. And so I recognize that ultimately when we arrive in heaven, that is ultimate healing. And when you read through chapter number 11, this passage is filled with tears. 
It is, man. I mean, everybody's crying. Mary's crying. Martha's crying. Their friends are crying. Their neighbors are crying. People are grieving with them. The Bible even says it's the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five 35 says that Jesus wept. He's crying. But in the midst of all of these hot tears crashing like waves, resurrection hope in Christ beams like a beacon through all of it. Because when Jesus came to Bethany, while Lazarus was laying in the tomb, resurrection hope came to town. I want you to realize that we have hope of a resurrection, and it's not just this theological reality. I asked you, do you believe in life after death? Do we believe in a resurrection as a matter of theology? Well, sure we do, but I want you to know it's, it's I don't want you to only think about it as a matter of theology, because that won't help you a whole lot when your loved one dies. I want you, first of all, to think about it as a personal hope. You and I have personal hope in this thing of sickness and death. I love how that Mary, or rather Martha, comes out first and she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in verse number 23, he says, your brother will live again. He doesn't just say, the dead shall rise. He doesn't just say, all in Christ shall live forever. Take hope in that great theological statement. He looked her in the eyes. Her eyes, which had watched her brother's eyes close and his final breath leave his lungs only four days ago. And he said to her, your brother, Lazarus, will rise again. Man, that's personal hope. If you've been with a loved one who's passed away and they knew Jesus, and in that moment you embrace the hope of their resurrection, you know it's not a theological truth only. It is a personal hope that sustains you in that moment. It is a personal thing. Lazarus will rise again. I want you to know, secondly, it is a present hope. Because notice her answer. He says, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And verse 24, she says, I know, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just that he's going to live again at the last day. He is living now because he goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life, verse 25. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait a minute. Lazarus died. Is that what it says? Verse number 14, Jesus, red letters. Lazarus is dead. And yet he says in verse number 26, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So which is it? Do we die or do we not die if we believe in Jesus? Well, what Christ is teaching us is that our bodies will die and go back to the grave, but our spirit, that part of us that is the real us, it will live on. It goes to be with the Lord right away. Paul writes about this. We don't have time to turn. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes how that when we're in, the, in this life, we are living in a tent. This flesh is our tent our tabernacle. And it says that as long as we, the real us, as long as we are at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. Our spirit is not in heaven. We are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith. But when we are absent from the body, when our spirit leaves this body, when we are absent from this body, we are present with the Lord. If y'all listen to both campuses, shout amen. When your loved one who knows Jesus, if you're praying for a loved one who's sick to be healed and to be well, if God answers that, praise the Lord. But if he doesn't, 
If God says, no, I'm going to bring them home to heaven where they will be with me and they will be healed eternally with me. If that is the case, then you know this. The nanosecond their spirit leaves their body, they will open their eyes in the presence of Jesus Christ. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that, man, we, we long. We, I, it'd be okay with me to go ahead and go so that I could be with the Lord. It is a... It's a personal hope. Lazarus will rise. It's a present hope. I am the resurrection and life. And it is a promised hope. Because our, our spirit does go to be with the Lord and our bodies go to the grave. But the Bible promises us that there is a resurrection day for our bodies. I mean, Martha's not wrong in verse 24 when she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's not wrong. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So will every Christian rise again in the resurrection at the last day? That is that our spirit goes to be with the Lord, our body goes to be in the grave, but even as Christ was raised from the grave, we will be raised at his coming and there will be an eternal resurrection glorification of our bodies. And may I say with Jesus, dost thou believe this? Do you believe this? Well, you should because the Bible says that one day our bodies will rise as well. And we will be with him. So sickness is frightening. It's terrifying. It's devastating. But for the Christian, it is not a moment of hopelessness. There's a hope and a powerful Savior who can heal and a gracious Savior who will take us to heaven one day. Now you may be asking, well, so is this for everybody, Pastor? Is this like... Can anybody, can everybody know that they're going to sick and die, but they're going to go to heaven, so it's going to be okay? No. There's a clear caveat in this passage. Look at it, verse number, chapter number 11, verse number 24. I'm the resurrection, or verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that, say it with me, believes in me. He that believes. Though we were dead, yet shall he live. Verse 26, whosoever lives and what? Believes in me. There's the caveat. It is that believing is the key. Trusting in. The key is to believe while you live. He who lives and believes in me. And so while you're living, you hear the gospel, you hear the good news, you admit I live in a fallen world, sickness is real, death is certain for all of us, I don't want to be hopeless in death. I don't want to be lost forever in death. I don't want my loved ones to grieve never seeing me when I die because I didn't trust in Christ. So while I'm breathing and living, I'm going to believe. I'm going to put my faith in him so that having lived and believed, I will, when I approach physical death, I will not die, but rather I will go to be with the Lord. And what a glorious day that would be, right? I often am... am, uh, uh, heard to say at funerals when, when we're burying someone who's 70 or 80 or 90 years old or 100 years old, I will often say in all of those years, they had a lot of good days, birthdays and the days grandbabies came to visit, the days their children were born and the day they got the promotion, the day they got married, those were all great days. But do you know the very greatest day they ever had in 100 years maybe? It was two or three days before. When they closed their eyes in death, it was the best day they ever experienced in their life because they went to be with Jesus. 
What a day it will be when we close our eyes in death and we will run into the arms of Christ our Savior. And what a great and glorious day it will be when Christ comes again and the dead in Christ shall rise. Amen. And so my question is, have you believed in Jesus? That's really the, that's really the question. It's a question that Jesus asked to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe in me? Do you trust in me? And if you have taken Christ as your Savior, then while we will all ultimately face some form of sickness in all likelihood, certainly if we live long enough, old age will get us. Maybe some accident or some tragic event will happen. But if the Lord tarries, we're all going to die. But hear the words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die.